Well, do please uh, keep your Bibles open at that passage and also have the uh, white bulletin open because you'll find an outline there that explains where we're going in the next few minutes. And as you do that, I'm going to ask for the Lord's help. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This year is the uh, centenary of the end of the First World War. Um, In just four years, 20 million people were killed, making it one of the most bloody conflicts in human history. When it was over, uh, people were saying that, yes, it's the war to end all wars. A hundred years on, of course, we know that hope was premature because there were more violent deaths in the 20th century than in all previous centuries of human history put together. And in the light of that, I think it's impossible, isn't it, for any sensible human being to glorify war. We hate the thought of it, which is why I think some of the Christian hymns that speak about warfare actually make us feel really rather uncomfortable. We don't sing them very much these days, but when I was at school, and this may be true for some of you too, we would often sing hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching Us to War, or Fight the Good Fight, and others like it. Nobody really thought twice about it. But today, these choruses, they don't really fit with the way that, I guess, the majority of Christians think about the Christian faith. In Africa, of course, the prosperity gospel has swept across the continent promising peace. But the reality, of course, is that the Bible describes the Christian life as a fight. It's a battle. And that's very clear, isn't it, in the book of Revelation. The central chapters of the book are visions, and uh, in some of those visions, the, the curtain is drawn back so that we can see What's going on behind the scenes in the realm of unseen reality? And many of these visions remind us that beyond the sort of ordinary mundane routines of our lives, there is a fierce battle raging. It's a spiritual battle. That's why the Apostle Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms because there is a spiritual battle going on this morning in the heavenly realms between God and Satan and the Bible reminds us that you and I are caught up in it and for that reason it's really important for us to keep the big picture clear in our minds that's what Revelation does for us so in Revelation chapter 1 We're given a picture, aren't we, of the victorious Christ. And it shows us that the battle has already been won because Christ died and rose again. And now he's on the throne of the universe. And then right at the other end of the book, which we'll get to in about four years' time, chapters 21 and 22, those chapters reveal our glorious future. 
And they remind us that this war, this battle that we're engaged in isn't going to go on forever because one day Christ will return and he'll take us to be with him in a perfect new creation. But in between those two realities, the battle continues to rage. And while that is happening, Christ wants his church to be faithful in word and faithful in our witness. And the reason Christ expects that is because he's shown us that victory is certain and because we have a marvellous future to look forward to. That actually is why the book of Revelation is in your Bible. It's to keep us faithful in worship and witness in the heat of battle. Now the letter that we're looking at this morning, the letter to the church at Smyrna, is a perfect example. It's full of encouragement for Christians under pressure. And I want us to notice three things in the text to help us as you and I seek to live for Christ this week. And the first is the church's condition. The church's condition. Now after the postman had uh, delivered his letter to Ephesus, Smyrna was the next stop on the journey. It was about 35 miles up the coast. But um, if the church at Ephesus had forsaken their first love, the Christians at Smyrna had not. Christ has no word of complaint about them. Rather, as he walks about the lampstands, Jesus knows that they're suffering for their faith. Have a look with me at verse 9. Verse 9, I, I know your afflictions, says Jesus, and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know. See, the Lord Jesus knows what they're going through. And that, of course, is true of every single congregation throughout church history. It's actually true of every individual Christian. But I think it's significant to see what it is that Jesus knows about the church at Smyrna. First of all, he knows about their afflictions. Now, that's a very strong word um, that describes relentless pressure. Um, It's the word that used to be used for describing grinding stones, grinding stones in a mill. Um, So this is what the farmer did in order to produce flour from wheat. He, He would grind the wheat between the stones in his mill. And so today, of course, we sometimes talk, don't we, about people going through the mill. Now that's the idea here. Uh, Jesus says to these Christians, I know that you are going through the mill. I know the continuous, unrelenting pressure that you're under as my people in Smyrna. So they're suffering for being Christians. And the text goes on to tell us that that was happening in two particular ways. Poverty, in verse 9, And also in verse 9, slander. 
Poverty, because although they lived in a very prosperous city, Smyrna was extremely prosperous, many of the early Christians belonged to the underprivileged ranks of society. <clears throat> many of them were orphans or widows or slaves, and they'd been drawn into the church by the love of the Christian community. And for others, just the business of becoming Christians meant that their shops or their businesses were boycotted. Trading restrictions were placed on them by the Jews and by the the Gentiles, the emperor worshippers. So they found it very difficult to buy or sell their goods. So there was real poverty in the church at Smyrna. Now I think that's a really important insight for us this morning because it reminds us that it doesn't always pay to be a Christian. Putting the gospel first in our lives actually can be very expensive. This week I heard about a ministry couple uh, who were serving for about nine years in a very poor church in a rural community. Uh, Because the church was poor, they were unable to pay them enough to feed the family. But this couple were working away faithfully for the gospel in a very deprived community. But God knew their poverty. And he sent a Canadian couple to their area for a while who understood their need. Every weekend they would put a box of groceries in their boot so that the ministry couple went home and had food for the family. And as this Canadian couple got more and more involved in the life of the work, they were able to supplement the pastor's salary so that he could afford to feed his family. Now the extraordinary thing is this, that after nine years, this ministry couple were sent to a different church. The day before they moved the Canadian couple were told they'd been relocated back to Canada. You see, they'd done their job. Uh, I know, says the Lord Jesus, and he did. He sent his people to serve and provide for that pastoral couple. Now, this letter that we're looking at this morning is full of that kind of knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's saying to us that he knows what you're going through. He knows your affliction. And the point is, you see, that whatever it is that being a Christian causes us to suffer, Jesus says, I know all about it. Then the other thing that he knew about this particular church in verse 9 is the slander that they were receiving from the Jews. Now we know from history that there was a considerable Jewish population in Smyrna. Many of them were Roman citizens and most of them would have been fiercely opposed to anybody saying that Jesus was the Messiah. And so in the first century it was common for all kinds of rumours and false stories to be spread about Christians. Uh, For example, it it was rumoured that they were cannibals because they ate flesh and they drank blood. People had heard about their communion service, that the broken body of Jesus was symbolised in the bread and the blood of Jesus was symbolised in 
the wine. So their enemies were saying, look, if they're eating flesh and drinking blood, these people must be cannibals. I discovered uh, this week that as recently as the 1980s, people were saying that about Christians behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. So it's not an unusual thing. So the Christians were being slandered by the Jews and eventually the Romans had to move in and sort the problem out. And that's why Jesus says in verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What does that mean? Well, Jesus simply means that they were doing Satan's work, which of course was precisely what the Pharisees had done, wasn't it, in hounding the Lord Jesus to the cross. But friends, don't let's miss the main point of the passage because when Jesus here says, I know, he's not simply saying, I observe it. He's saying he's been through it all himself. Now that's a very big difference, isn't it? I mean, just think about it. You might be suffering some particular problem and you tell a Christian friend about it and because they want to make us feel better, What they really want to say to us is, oh, yes, I know. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're facing. But the problem is, you see, that unless they have faced the same situation, they don't really know, do they? I mean, they can try and comfort us in other ways, but they don't really know what it's like. But when Jesus says, I know, he's not just sympathising. He's saying, I've been through that myself. I know what it's like to be stripped of everything. And I know what it's like to be slandered and degraded and humiliated in public in the most shameful way. So brothers and sisters, when you and I are tempted to give way to despair or self-pity because of the things that you and I might be called to suffer for the gospel, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's remember he's already been through it all before. I know. But I also want us to notice those four very important words in the middle of verse 9. Just look at verse 9 with me again. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now notice this. Yet... You are rich. Because, you see, Jesus not only knows about our outward circumstances, no, no, he also knows the inner reality of his people. You see, in the lives of Jesus, the faithfulness of these suffering Christians was like gold. So he reminds them that they're rich people Of course, in the end, his assessment is the only one that really counts, isn't it? I mean, in the eyes of the world, these these Christians might look like fools because they've lost their livelihood, they're losing their reputation, they're going through this grinding persecution. Some of them are even going to lose their lives. What losers? But you see, they follow a Lord who though he was rich, yet for our sakes 
became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. And they are rich. I mean, Christians are rich in faith, rich in their relationship with God who's made us part of his eternal family and our wealth will never perish or spoil or fade. And in all of our struggles, the Lord Jesus is always with us. But you see, it does challenge us, doesn't it? What sort of wealth are we living for? Let me put it to you this way. Would you still be a Christian this morning if your name was on a list being kept by the secret police and you lived in constant fear of a knock on the door and being taken away and being arrested? Would you still be a Christian If being a Christian meant losing your job, not getting a promotion, not getting a place at university, would you still follow Christ if other people were slandering you and spreading all kinds of false rumours about you? It is quite a thought, isn't it? But you see, the church at Smyrna reminds us that true spiritual riches, now listen to this, true spiritual riches are experienced by Christians in adversity. See, that's the paradox of the Gospel, isn't it? As Paul says elsewhere, when I'm weak, I'm strong. When I'm poor, I'm rich. And there's no suggestion anywhere in the Bible that these Christians at Smyrna were ever airlifted out of the problem. There's nothing about them being removed from the situation. But there is everything about Christ being with them in the middle of it. So that's the first thing that Jesus says. I know. He knows all about our struggles. He knows all about our situation. But he also knows that because we are his, brothers and sisters, we are truly rich. Because he can supply all the strength, all the resources that we need to persevere in faith even when we're going through the grinding mill. But let's move on from the church's condition and notice, secondly, the Master's commission. Because, you see, the Lord Jesus calls us to stand firm in faith. Yes, he does know all about our struggles, but look with me at verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now notice that just as there were two things that Jesus knew about them, so there are two commands that Jesus gives. Firstly, in verse 10, do not be afraid. Because, you see, the opposition and the suffering are about to get worse. And that would cause us to fear, wouldn't it? 
I mean, the prosperity gospel preachers don't tell us about this, do they? But Jesus says, notice this, the devil is about to test them in prison for a period of time described here as ten days, which is just the Bible's way of speaking about a comparatively short and limited period of time. But I guess as you and I read this, we we might be asking ourselves, well, how can the devil do this? Because it's Jesus who says, I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. But is the devil really in control of the Christian circumstances? I mean, surely we believe, don't we, that Jesus is sovereign over all the hostile powers. I hope we believe that. Well, of course we do, because the Bible so clearly teaches it. But the Bible also says that the devil has a role in testing or sifting the faith of God's people. I think the best example of this is in the opening section of the book of Job. I'd like you to turn there now. Won't you keep one finger, please, in Revelation and turn with me to Job chapter 1 on page 361. Job 1 page 361. Not an easy book. Job 1. The angels of God here um, are reporting back to headquarters, so to speak, and Satan, the devil, is asked whether he has observed the godly man Job. Now, verse 9, page 361 The devil says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you, God, not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Now see what happens in verse 12, down to verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, Do not lay a finger. In other words, Satan can't go one inch further in testing Job than God allows him. He's a creature of God. He's under God's sovereign control. And although the devil is constantly slandering God and his people, constantly seeking to destroy God's work, the devil is not equal with God. He's a creature. And in the end, he's going to be snuffed out when God throws him into the lake of fire. We'll get there eventually. But for a while, for a while, the devil has a certain amount of authority carefully controlled by God. That's why um, in the New Testament, you don't need to turn to it, but in Luke 22... The Lord Jesus says to Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. And in the text, the you is plural. So Satan has asked to sift all of you disciples as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now do you get the picture? Satan has asked God for permission to test the disciples of Jesus, to sift them, just as he sifted 
Job. But if God's people will only trust him, they will emerge stronger in faith than they were before. And so the testing of the church at Smyrna is nothing, it's nothing unusual, it's nothing strange. It is absolutely characteristic of the devil to want to do this. So come back with me to Revelation because God says to his people, I've given the devil limited permission to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. But of course it's all going to be under God's sovereign control. And God's gracious purpose in the testing and the trials that you and I have to deal with is not to wear us down or to to harm us in any way, but rather to strengthen our faith so that it, it sort of comes through the testing refined like gold in the fire because that will vindicate God's name, his reputation, and that will build up the church. And that's why Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Because it is faith that banishes fear. Faith that the Lord is actually in total control and that all is well, ultimately, however bleak it might seem this morning. Because he is the sovereign God. He is the God of love and mercy. And we could not be in stronger or wiser hands than his. So the persecution is limited, ten days, and it produces a faith that enables us to be faithful. Now having said all of that, I wonder if you can see how these two commands are linked. 10a... Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. 10b, be faithful even to the point of death. Now, here's the question. How can we be faithful like that? Well, only by being convinced of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. You see, this is the big takeaway. Being faithful is holding on to the faithfulness of God. That is an extremely precious and important message for you and I to learn. I think I've told some of you before the story of Hudson Taylor, who learned this lesson when he was translating the New Testament into Chinese. Uh, He'd gone out to China as a missionary in the 19th century. He'd, He'd learned the language... Um, He dressed like a Chinaman, Uh, he was integrating with the people, but it was an extremely hard time for him. It was a depressing time, because he received lots of criticism from people in the UK who said, you know, he's gone native, you can't really trust Hudson Taylor. So he he was discouraged, he was disappointed. And one day he was translating Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And that verse says... Have faith in God. And as he sort of looked at that in his Greek New Testament, he thought, how on earth can I possibly 
have faith in God in this discouraging and desperately disappointing situation. But then he saw that the verb to have actually means to have in your hand or to to hold on to. And the word for faith in Mark 11.22 is the same word translated elsewhere, faithfulness. And the penny dropped. Hudson Taylor realised that God was saying to him, hold on to a faithful God. Because having faith in God is holding on to the God who is faithful. That's what it means. And that's what God is calling us to do. Trust me, he says. You see, it's not about being a spiritual superhero. It's about holding on to Christ in the midst of my weaknesses, knowing that the grip with which he holds on to me is a million times stronger than the grip with which I hold on to him. So Jesus knows our struggles and he calls us to stand firm in faith because he knows that he is going to bring us through. And our faith is going to be refined and it's going to be strengthened. But what if it comes to martyrdom? Have a look at verse 8. This is how Jesus begins the letter. It's always significant for what follows. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So even if Jesus calls his people to walk the pathway of martyrdom, it's as though Jesus is saying to them, I've been on that pathway too. I know all about it. I've been through it. I've been through the darkest valley. You see, friends, at the end of the day, there is no darkness that the Lord Jesus has not himself penetrated. There is nothing that Jesus calls you and I to go through that he has not gone through before us himself and won't go through with us. Because there's another place in Hebrews where Jesus says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Now friends, can I say that that is what keeps Christians confessing Christ in prison all the way around the world this morning. In our frail humanity, we fear suffering. Of course we do. But you see, it's knowing this that will keep us true whenever you and I are called to suffer for the name of Jesus. We know that the Lord calls us to stand firm in faith because he will never let us go and he will never let us down and he tells us that so that we'll be ready and won't be taken by surprise when it happens. Many Christians are. Please can we not be at St Barnabas? It's actually part of what it means to be a Christian. So friends, are you with me so far? The Lord Jesus knows 
the church's condition. He knows all about your struggles and all about mine. And he's given us a commission to stand firm in faith. Now notice thirdly with me the Christian's comfort in this text. The word comfort is a very important Bible word and it means breathing new life into us. It means God coming alongside us in strength. Sometimes we get a bit confused about this because when you and I hear the word comfort, we think of hot drinks by the fire in winter, or if you come from where I come from, you think of fabric conditioner. But comfort is the strengthening power of God at work among his people. That's what it is. Now, how does that come to these Christians? Well, look with me at verse 8. Jesus says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. That means there was nothing before him and there will be nothing after him because he is eternal. So he's never going to fail. He's the first and the last. But if you've been with us in the series, you know that is an echo of what Jesus already said to John back in chapter 1, verse 17. Please have a look at it. Do not be afraid, says Jesus. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The point is that the Lord Jesus rules over death and everything that lies beyond it. He was Lord of it all before we were born. He will be Lord of it all long after you and I have died and been forgotten in this world. He will be Lord of it all to our children and to our children's children. And you see, the thing is, while you and I live and die, chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that Jesus died and came to life again. And the order is significant, isn't it? Because death couldn't hold him. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know that death is a defeated foe. It's why the keys of death and Hades are in his hands. Because that whole realm of death is totally under Christ's authority. Now I wonder if you can see what that means. It means no believer dies by accident. No believer dies by the will of men or by any other hostile power. Not in a primary sense. No, every believer is called home into the presence of God at the precise moment Christ chooses because he holds the keys of death and Hades. Nobody else does. And there's an additional comfort, isn't there, at the end of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. What's that all about? Well, Smyrna was famous for its athletics and its games. It had a marvellous games arena. So, the Christians at Smyrna 
would not find it hard to understand the metaphor of the Christian life as a race or a contest with eternal life as the victor's crown. And in the games, of course, they knew that training and and energy and a certain amount of pain were required in order to compete successfully. And Jesus is saying that's what the Christian life is like. But he's standing at the finishing line and in his hand is the crown of life which he gives to everyone who is faithful to the end. And it's the crown of life, my friends, because what looks like the end is in fact only the beginning. The beginning of life that is eternal. How do we know that? Well, as we finish, look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes who perseveres, who holds on through all the pressures and the suffering, who who doesn't allow his faith to slip through his fingers. He who overcomes because God has got him in his grip will not be hurt at all by the second death. You see, if eternal life is truly yours and mine this morning, nothing Nothing can separate us from it. There is no second death for those who are in Christ. But there is a second death, that is, a permanent separation from the presence of God for those who die without being reconciled to him. And that, of course, is what would have happened to the persecutors of the Christians at Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan, would face the second death. But those who put their trust in Jesus, those who've been born again by his Spirit and who are living in Christ today and who seek to be faithful in all the suffering and all the problems and all the broken relationships, they don't need to worry about the second death because it can't hurt them. That's what Jesus says. So how did they get on in Smyrna? We don't know all the details, but we do have one small fragment of evidence from early church history. Because one of the martyrs at Smyrna was, in fact, the bishop, the bishop of the church. His name was Polycarp. Um, The experts say that Polycarp was consecrated as bishop of Smyrna by the Apostle John himself. Pretty amazing thought. So, Polycarp would most definitely have read this letter. And after a very long and faithful ministry, he was put on trial for his faith, he was sentenced to death. Because of his great age, the the consul, the judge, urged him to deny his faith so that his life might be spared. And, Polycarp's reply is famous. He says this, For 86 years, 86 years, I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme the king who saved me? 
You see, he was not afraid to die because he, he trusted the God who is faithful. And moments later he was, he was burned alive. But you see, Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Now that's a promise. That is a promise. So as we take that amazing promise into our lives this week, here are three things to take with us. Number one, the Lord Jesus knows all about our struggles. Number two, the Lord Jesus calls us to stand firm in faith, not to fear, but to trust him, because he couldn't love us more and he will never love us less. And the Lord Jesus rules over death and everything that lies beyond death. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is the blessing of being a member of his church. Shall we pray? Gracious God, we we ask that you would grant us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to us here at St Barnabas. For as we go out into the world this week, there will be times when we will be reminded that being a Christian is hard. The world is still slandering your people. Many of your people are poor and know the pain and the hurt of relentless persecution. But we thank you that our suffering is nothing compared to what you suffered for us. And we thank you that when we're going through the mill, that we can fix our eyes on Jesus so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. Remind us that Jesus knows all about our struggles. And that when he calls us to stand firm in faith, he's asking us to hold on to the God who is always faithful so that we may live lives that glorify you and in the end receive the crown of life. And all God's people said... Amen indeed. Let's welcome the children back as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper.